Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. All around us are a community of tiny organisms, invisible to the naked eye, that are coexisting with people, animals, and plants. Microbiomes. The human microbiome is essential to our health, helping us digest our food and regulate our immune system. On today's show, I talk with scientists speaking at this year's AAAS meeting, that is, the annual conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It gathers scientists from around the world, and this year, much of the buzz was about how microbiomes are shaping the world. First up, researchers are uncovering new ways that the human microbiome can treat diseases including diabetes and Parkinson's disease. Treating the gut is much easier than treating the brain. And how understanding soil microbiomes could help combat climate change. If we could figure out a way to store more carbon in soils, we would be able to achieve some of our targets in terms of reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. When you think of any microorganism, they predate humans by at least 5.3 million years. And then when humans, you know, came along at about 100 to 200,000 years ago, they just found a new surface to colonize, which is the human body. My name is Pranima Kumar. I'm a periodontist and a microbial ecologist. And I study how the human microbiome contributes to our health and how it causes disease when it goes rogue. The human microbiome consists of trillions of microorganisms like bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live all over our bodies. And while these very little creatures may not seem that impressive on their own, collectively, they can have an enormous influence on our health. Bacteria will live on us. They have lived on us. They will continue to live on us with or without your consent. And they are much smarter than we give them credit for. They have evolved with every single change we have thrown at them. They have evolved and they will continue to evolve and they'll continue to learn about our immune system and adapt and survive and, you know, develop this this fitness to live on us. And they can actually offer huge benefits to us. It's very important to keep them as friends and not to let them turn into our foes because when they do, the results are pretty devastating. Imbalances in our body's microbial ecosystems are linked to an astonishing array of neurological and physical disorders. Gilad Ahmed is a science correspondent for The Economist. Researchers like Dr. Kumar are discovering that the microbiomes in our guts and our mouths can be linked to diseases as diverse as rheumatoid arthritis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and diabetes. That seems pretty counterintuitive. 
what connection do microbes in our mouths have to do with anything more than, say, tooth decay? Now, I don't want to be too pessimistic about the role these microbes play, because many of them play an actively helpful role. They support our immune system, they teach it to identify and attack harmful bacteria. But when the microbial community gets out of balance in one part of the body, it can start manipulating that immune system, which can have impacts all over the body. And one place where this microbial equilibrium is particularly fragile is the mouth. Not only because it's exposed to countless new bacteria from the air we breathe, the food we eat, the pen lids we tap against our teeth when we're thinking, but also because the mouth and gums are very generously threaded with blood vessels which means that harmful bacteria can find it very easy to jump the barrier and hitch a ride on the capillaries to wind up somewhere completely different in the body. Okay, so what happens when these microbes hitch a ride and spread around the body? Researchers like Dr. Kumar have linked the oral microbiome with, it should be said, varying degrees of certainty to over 50 conditions. And to take arthritis as a particular example, rheumatoid arthritis happens when the immune system is provoked to attack and weaken some of the body's joints. And studies led by Ian Chappell at Birmingham University in the UK show that mouth bacteria associated with gum disease can provoke the body's immune system to produce more of these harmful antibodies which are responsible for joint inflammation. So while these causal chains are still being forged for many of the diseases, most researchers agree that the link between the oral microbiome and diabetes is, is pretty solid. And this is something that Dr. Kumar has spent many years collecting evidence on, the connection between gum disease and diabetes. The first evidence was that, oh, well, diabetics have a much more severe gum disease and much more extensive, right? More, many teeth in their mouth are affected with gum disease than non-diabetics. So everyone said, well, having gum disease, periodontitis is a sixth complication of diabetes. So someone said, all right, let's start treating teeth with diabetes. Let's go through periodontal surgery for people with diabetes, right? And they started making their gums healthy. And they found, yes, making their gums healthy was great, but as these people's gum health improved, so did their glycemic index. Their blood sugar levels went down. And even more importantly, by the simple act of visiting your hygienist and letting your teeth cleaned, their need for antihyperglycemic medication, their need for diabetes medication went down significantly. Okay, that's one end, the microbiome in the mouth. But what about the other, the gut? Back in 2019, I spoke to a researcher, Rosa Kramalik-Brown from Arizona State University, and we spoke about how autism is linked to gut bacteria. So how has the science evolved over the past two years? So she actually shared a few updates at the AAAS conference, which took place virtually this week. Now, one reason to believe that autism might be linked to the gut microbiome is because individuals with autism often report experiencing gastrointestinal distress. So what Dr. Kreshmaldik Brown and her team did was they examined the microbial diversity of children who had autism and did in fact identify that it was much more limited than in those without. There were all sorts of species that were absent. So she and her team attempted a wholesale population change. They emptied the gut of its resident fauna in children with autism and replaced it with the help of fecal samples taken from 
healthy children. Now, her study appears to have yielded remarkable results. The microbial diversity in the guts of her patients increased throughout the 10-week treatment, and it also led to long-lasting improvements, which were still felt as far as two years later in gut diversity, in gastrointestinal health, and even behavior in some of the children. Now, the results are very exciting, but there are a number of loopholes in the experimental procedure that need to be sewn shut before anything can be said for certain. At the same conference this week, there was also exciting work presented on links between the gut microbiome and Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder that results from the loss of some very specific neurons in a part of the brain that controls motor function. I'm uh, Tim Sampson. I'm an assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine uh, in the Department of Physiology. So the very first description of Parkinson's disease 200 years ago by James Parkinson actually identified that individuals who were showing this tremor, this shaking palsy as he called it, had intestinal pathology. So they had inflammatory activation, inflamed guts. And one of his patients, he actually gave a very strong laxative and that patient no longer had a tremor. And so there's this idea has been sort of floating around since the very first description of Parkinson's disease, even before it had its name. And I think now with better epidemiology and some very interesting imaging studies, we're finding that the gut is changing before the brain in Parkinson's. So individuals who are predisposed to PD in certain ways actually are losing neurons within the peripheral nervous system, within the gastrointestinal tract, within the heart, before those neurons are being lost in the brain. So it's this idea that something might be spreading from the gut and and entering the brain. So how does your research fit in? What new links are you discovering between the gut microbiome and Parkinson's? My work revolves around understanding the functional contributions of these microbiomes. And so generally, we use germ-free mouse models. And so these are mice that are born and raised in the absence of all microbes. So they have no bacteria, no fungi, no viruses, none of the native indigenous microbes that are usually inhabiting an animal, including us. And we are able to use that model to then colonize the mice with microbiomes from humans uh, or defined artificial microbiomes even, or specific bacteria, in order to then look at the brains of these animals and their behaviors to identify whether certain microbes or compositions of a microbiome are themselves solely responsible for mediating an effect in the brain. How do the guts of people with Parkinson's disease differ from those without it? In the context of the microbiome population, there are some very discrete bacteria that that appear different across studies. There's increases in particular bacteria, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, and decreases in some other bacteria called lactospiratiae generally that are really important for modulating certain inflammatory responses in our gut. Thinking about a signature, it's the idea that there are distinct microbes that are present or absent only in Parkinson's disease or only in individuals with Parkinson's disease. So generally, we are finding that the microbiomes from people who have Parkinson's disease, as well as particular bacteria that are enriched in people who have Parkinson's disease, that they promote some of the similar pathologies in our mouse model that we see in in Parkinson's. So perhaps some microbes within the gut may be triggering or exacerbating the disease effects. Do researchers have any idea how that causality works? How does the detrimental bacteria signal travel from the gut to the brain? 
That's a very great question. And there's a number of different mechanisms. And I think we're in very early days in, in trying to understand this. I think what we know is that the microbiome composition definitely changes outcomes in the brain. But as you mentioned, how is that signal being transduced? How is that signal being trafficked to the brain? And so one way could be through immune cells. And so we know that the microbiome and the bacteria in the gut can change the development and the activation status of the immune system. And perhaps those different inflammatory statuses could affect the brain. Or perhaps there are particular molecules within the microbiome that they themselves, those, these particular molecules, are sort of acting as a, a toxin or a trigger to cause the Parkinson's pathology, and it's traveling itself directly to the brain from the gut. And there's a number of different anatomical connections. For instance, the vagus nerve and the spinal cord, all of these connections that come right from the brain and enter the gut. Now, is it just Parkinson's disease, or do these microbiomes have an effect on other neurodegenerative diseases? In Alzheimer's disease, for instance, the sequencing, the composition studies of the microbiome are still early. There's only a small number. And it looks like the populations are different. So in that neurodegenerative disease, the composition of the microbiome is changing, but it's not changing in the same way that it's changed in Parkinson's disease. So if the microbiome is acting in Alzheimer's, it's probably acting through different mechanisms or through different bacteria. Now, I guess the big question is, what does this mean for the future of treatment for either Parkinson's disease or for other neurodegenerative diseases. I really like to think that perhaps we might be able to identify an early signature in the microbiome before Parkinson's disease fully manifests in the brain, and that might provide an earlier treatment window for individuals who are predisposed to Parkinson's or who are in the very early stages. Or, uh, I guess more coercively, the idea that if we can identify those early signatures, that we might be able to prevent whatever detrimental effects the microbiome is having prior to full manifestation of Parkinson's in the brain. Treating the gut is much easier than treating the brain. So the gut microbiome is readily accessible through diet, through different oral pharmaceuticals, easily accessible, and getting drugs to the brain is very difficult. Okay, so we've looked at the oral microbiome, and we've looked at the other part of the body, the gut microbiome. Gilad, I suppose the question becomes, how do the two interact? How do they relate to each other, and do they? Those are some of the most intriguing and hotly debated questions in the field at the moment. Now, it's possible, some say, that both are actually part of the same microbiome, common to the whole digestive system, and we've only been examining different parts of it instead of looking at the whole. Alternatively, one or other could be in the driving seat for the whole body. So there's a dispute there still to be resolved. That's so interesting. Gilad, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And you can read more on this subject, written by my colleague Gilad. Babbage listeners can get a special introductory deal on subscriptions to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live 
and move to the UK. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. It's just a couple of months since 90-year-old Margaret Keenan from Coventry in England became the first person in the world to get the jab for COVID-19. More than 100 million shots have been administered since then. But the number of cases of COVID-19 detected worldwide has also passed the 100 million mark. We're in a race between infections and injections. This is The Jab, a new podcast from Economist Radio. We'll be reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race, with help from our colleagues on our science and data teams and from our correspondents around the world. As this race enters its most crucial phase, we'll keep you up to date with the latest developments and unpick the complex process that takes vaccines from the lab and into the arms of people who need it. We'll get insights on everything from virology to logistics and the vaccine's impact on global geopolitics. The stakes couldn't be higher. It's the most ambitious inoculation programme the world has ever seen. And the health and wealth of the planet is in the balance. Subscribe to The Jab from Economist Radio. On Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. These organisms that live in soil perform, to be honest, so many more functional activities than we even really know. I'm Jennifer Petridge. I'm from Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California, and I am a soil biogeochemist and microbial ecologist. And what I really love is using isotopes to try and understand how the complex communities in soils work. Soil microbiomes are incredibly complex mixtures of microbes, and by that we mean bacteria and fungi, but we really also include viruses and microfauna. So it's a big tent of different types of organisms that are interacting, and I'll be honest, they run the world (laughs) on this planet. They carry out so many different kinds of biochemical interactions, and In a way, they are not necessarily different in those interactions from those that you'd find in the human microbiome, but the cast of characters is entirely different. There are organisms that are dependent on plants or dependent on living in different habitats in soil that you would never find in a human or an animal gut microbiome. Whoa, 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 whoa. They run the world. What do you mean by that? These organisms have pretty much found a way to catalyze every kind of biochemical interaction that we're aware of. So every chemical redox reaction, whether that's oxidizing different kinds of reduced organic matter or reducing iron, reducing sulfur, almost every kind of element that we find in the environment can be acted upon by microbes. And they do that because they're trying to make a living. They need energy and they need carbon, mostly, to be able to grow. And at the AAAS meeting, you revealed some of your latest findings. What were they? So one of the most interesting things we found has to do with soil viruses, which I'll be honest, we knew almost nothing about until very, very recently. What we found is that in soils that are slightly wetter, 
the number of active viruses is significantly higher. And when we look at what those viruses are up to, we can match them to what we call their hosts, who it is that they're targeting. And viruses target because they're trying to lice their host. They're trying to kill their host and make more copies of themselves. This could impact soil carbon simply because there's more death going on. The more hosts you kill, the more cell debris is floating around and could get stabilized in soil, or it could get respired away and lost to the atmosphere. But the most fascinating thing for me is that we see such a tangled web of of, of death, as it were, organisms like phage that are targeting types of bacteria who are then predatory and eating other kinds of bacteria or eating fungal material. The net result of all those different kinds of interactions that we're finding is this huge pulse of carbon dioxide that we see when soils get that first wet up in the fall. What does it mean that the soil has lost so much carbon? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? If it's a fact of life, why would the world have evolved for that? It's very much a fact of life. Bacteria, fungi, protists, all of these organisms, roots even, they breathe, just as you and I do. They respire out carbon dioxide. So the soil is always going to be losing carbon. The difference between what we see, particularly in our agricultural soils now versus 200 years ago, is the balance of how much carbon's being absorbed versus how much is being lost. So for example, in the middle of the United States where we used to have these great prairies, we would have deep rooted plants that stimulated an enormous amount of microbial biomass for a meter or two into the soil. And that would have essentially acted like a pump, pumping carbon down into the ground. And yes, those organisms would have been breathing, of course, and respiring and losing carbon, but the net effect was to what we call a sink. There was more carbon coming in than what was being lost. But unfortunately, the state our ag soils in particular in now is that sink has lessened. It is still a sink, but we are losing more than we ideally would be. So it doesn't sound like that's a good thing if we're losing our carbon sinks through the soil. What do we do about it? I think that's the million dollar question. I think if we could figure out a way to store more carbon in soils, we would be able to achieve some of our targets in terms of reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And there are many folks who've suggested different solutions. One of them might be increasing the depth of roots. So if we planted crops that had deeper rooting phenotypes, that would be a way of essentially stuffing more carbon deep in the ground where it tends to be more stable. There are others who have suggested we could move towards more perennial organisms, growing plants that are multi-year lived as opposed to just annuals. If we try to make sure that there's always some sort of plant crop on the ground, so that's often called cover cropping. There's techniques where we don't plow as much. And then one of the most intriguing that a colleague at the Salk Institute has suggested is actually engineering plant roots to have recalcitrant molecules in those roots, a compound called suberin. So the idea there is that if you put into the ground a compound that nobody likes to eat, then that carbon will inherently get stuck. But I'll tell you, I don't think we know the mechanics of whether that's true or not. We don't know whether microbes won't just learn how to eat suberin. (laughs) So there are a lot of great suggestions right 
right now, but we're very, very much involved in trying to figure out the mechanisms. Jennifer Petridge, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.